So I'm a, a longtime fan of the NBA. I've watched for a number of years and decades, really. Uh, I've been watching the NBA. And uh, I've always enjoyed it. But I have to say, you know, this, this modern NBA, is, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's the level of athleticism overall, the skill, just throughout the league is, is, is amazing. It's, it's some of the best, uh, well, most talented players I've seen among the widest group of players I've seen in a long time. Um, However, there are some things about the modern NBA that are a little bit annoying, <laughs> and one of those is how much more players will complain to the referee. Um, my man LeBron, and I like LeBron, right? Just so you know, don't hate on him, right? Don't come at me. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of him, but he's, he's notorious for this. Here's a classic LeBron pitcher. That expression <laughs> pointing at something, uh, that's what he does. But he's not the only one. He's sort of the, the poster child for this. A lot of these players will do this more than I've ever seen. But here's the thing, what, what hasn't changed is the basic sort of rules of the game, which is there's a referee. <laughs> that referee renders a judgment. Right? Here's what's right and wrong, right? That's why the referee is there. That's what they're supposed to do. They render a judgment and that player, the players, they can, they can hear what the, the referee has to say. They can argue against it. They might try to dismiss it, try to walk away, oh, this is not happening. <laughs> Complain about it, they can get mad. And yet the referee still has to make that judgment because the referee decides what's right and wrong. Right? The referee determines what the judgment is. He speaks or she speaks and doesn't change that, does it? Because that's the judgment. And, and that's a sort of just a, a framework I, I want us to think about as we look at um, our passage this morning. And really what we're doing this morning is finishing the story of Saul. This is coming to the end of his story here, and, and as we come to the end of this book. Saul, for those of you who haven't been here in our series, was Israel's first king. Started off with great potential. He looked like he was going to be a really good king, but he continued to disobey God, not listen to God. And because of that, there were consequences to Saul. God rendered a judgment upon Saul. He said, you're not going to be king anymore. Someone else is going to become king. And what Saul does is basically spend the rest of his life fighting against that, complaining against that, resisting that. But doesn't change God's judgment, does it? Because God is a judge. He, he renders judgment. God decides what's right and wrong. And, and that's really the main thing I'm going to have us be considering this morning. What is it to sort of appreciate the fact that God speaks? He renders judgment. And the question is, how will we react we react like Saul or like an NBA player with a referee. Uh, we can complain, we can resist, we can ignore, we can dismiss, we can try to say, no, this should change in a way that's better with my circumstances or my preferences. We can do all those different things, but doesn't work. Why? Because God's judgment is God's judgment. In fact, God's judgment is actually justice. I use that word very deliberately. When we think of God's judgment, what we're thinking of is God's justice. When God brings a judgment, when he says, here's what's right and wrong in this situation, he's doing it in a way that's impartial, in a way that's fair. And fair it's, not, it's not arbitrary or vindictive. God is saying, here's what it is. It's actually justice when you hear God's judgment. He's setting down what's right and wrong, and that can't change. It won't change because God's judgment is based on who God is. He's good, and he's right. And he's fair and he's just and he's always going to pursue that. And so the question always is, how will we react to that? That's kind of a framework of what we'll look at this morning. If you look down in chapter 28. Um, so let me set it up for you. Beginning of that chapter, prophet Samuel is dead. The Philistines are about to attack. Uh, David, 
who's been their best warrior against the Philistines. He's not there because Saul chased him off. He's over with the Philistines. King Saul is in some deep trouble, and he knows it. He feels it. Verse 5, it says, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. He knows he's in trouble. So Saul says, let me talk to the Lord about this. (laughs) But God's not talking. Verse 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, is God being petty here? He's not not being petty. Um, First of all, let's remember, this is a a situation of Saul's own making. A couple chapters earlier, remember Saul killed all the priests because he was mad at them for helping David. It's kind of a problem. The priests are how you hear from the Lord. You kill all of them. It's going to be a problem when you want to hear from the Lord, right? So that's that's a problem that he created. But even more so, what we're seeing here is not Saul saying, like, I want a relationship with you, God. That's not what he's doing here. Notice the circumstances here. Like, Samuel's dead. Philistines are about to launch a major attack. He hasn't been interested in what God has to say for a while. All of a sudden now, he wants to hear from the Lord. He wants to hear from the Lord because he wants God to tell him, hey, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. We're going to win. He's coming to the Lord not for an honest relationship with the Lord. He's coming because he wants to hear, hey, we won't be defeated. Here's the thing. God's already spoken. God's already said what he's had to say. He's already said, your kingship is doomed. You should not be surprised at this happening. And so, you know, let me just sort of suggest something here before we go on. There's a lot of reasons why sometimes you might feel like you're not hearing from God, like God is quiet in your life. And, and there's a lot of different reasons that we should explore. But one of them, possibly, not saying it's true for everyone, but one of them sometimes is the fact, the reason you're not hearing from God is because God's already said what he's had to say. Like he's already spoken. Like, you're asking him to change what he's already said. And so you think he's being quiet, but he's like, like I've already said it. I said what I said. <laughs> See, God's word, and, and I've read this Bible for, for years and years now. And one of the things, I mean, look, there's some parts that are a little, little strange. I'm looking at you, Revelation, right? Uh, there's some parts <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure what's going on here. But there's a whole lot of things, especially on the most important things most important things where God is actually pretty clear, pretty direct. God has things, clear things to say, judgments he's read about what's right and wrong, and all sorts of things about how we relate to one another, how we understand ourselves as people, how we understand our, our gender, our sexuality, our race, how we understand our marriage, how we understand parenting, how we understand our work life, how we understand how we use our time and money. God said all sorts of different things. He's, he's given us things for us to, to hear and to listen to, and the question always is, well, will we hear it? Will we listen to it? That often what God is saying is like, I've already said it, and I'm wanting you to just be honest. You don't like it, or you want to dismiss it, you want to change it, or whatever else it might be, right? And how we respond to this comes down to, to the degree in which we recognize God's judgment is justice, right? It's right, and it's fair, and it's good, and it sits outside of ourselves because we're not the referee of life. God is. <laughs> and so the question is how we approach it isn't it? Sometimes we're not hearing from God, or we feel like we're not getting what we want from God because God's already spoken the things that he's had to say. That's, that's what's happening, I think, with Saul here. If you read through 1 Samuel, he's, he's said enough already to Saul, and Saul doesn't like it. He keeps wanting to change it, wanting to, to, to go in a different direction. So let's keep going in our story. So Saul, he's not hearing from God, so guess what? He switches gears. Like, I'll find another way. We're told that he looks for a medium, or I like the older translations better. He looks for a witch, right? He looks for, uh, older translations say, the witch of Endor, right? 
One problem, verse 3 tells us the witches, or better, better way to put it, the mediums and necromancers, I like to say witches, <laughs> they, the witches and wizards, <laughs> they've all been kicked out of Israel. And there's a reason why. What they did, and particularly he's looking for someone who can help speak to the dead. Necromancy, divination, that kind of thing was done often back in that time period in the ancient Near East. It was a common way of sort of interacting and, and sort of getting information. The one exception was Israel. So all the pagan nations did this, common practice, but in biblical religion, you didn't do this. Why? Because Israel was the one nation among all nations that, say, that said, look, we follow the word God, which means we listen to his word, what he has to say. We follow what he says, and we submit to what he says, to his plan, to his direction for life. The problem with divination, necromancy, divination, all those different things, the reason people, the pagan nations did that was because this is a way to manipulate life, right, to get control of life. You wanted to hear from the dead because they would give you information that allow you to sort of make sure things happen the way you want them to happen. That's idolatry for God's people, isn't it? That we don't sort of say, hey, how do I get supernatural power to make sure things happen the way I want them to? No, God says, I'm sovereign. This is my word. Will you listen to it? I've already spoken. Will you listen? Will you submit to it? So that's why these practices weren't allowed in Israel. But here we have Saul. And maybe not surprisingly, he's like, I, I need a word. I need a divine word that's on my terms. <laughs> so let me find someone who can give that to me. So verses 8 and 9 of chapter 28 tells us Saul goes in disguise to find a medium. And it's risky for him to do this. If you read those verses there, scan those verses, the place he goes is actually behind enemy lines. And so he, he's taking a huge risk to go find someone who can sort of speak to the dead for him. So he goes with a couple of his men behind enemy lines to find a medium, and he asks this person, they find someone, who, to call up a spirit for him. Verse 9 tells us that this person doesn't trust what's going on here. She says, the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Verse 10, Saul says, look, don't worry. And get this, he swears by the name of the Lord that nothing bad will happen to her. So get this, he says, I swear by the name of the Lord that this seance that you're going to do and that the Lord is forbidden, you'll be fine, right? This is, this is how, <laughs> how off course <laughs> Saul has gotten here, right? And obviously he's taking the Lord's name in vain and all the, all the things, right? But here's what he does, right? That's what he says to her. So Saul asks her to call up Samuel, right? The one prophet he, he had a relationship with that he... What he used to have, they used to, they, they used to be buddies, right? They used to roll together. Maybe Samuel will come and give me a word that I want to hear. So she calls up Samuel, and her reaction is funny. She was not expecting this to happen. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She realizes, like, this is different, right? Because one of the things, um, at least from what, a little bit of what I've looked at here, is that when these people who would do these kind of practices, calling up the dead, what they would do is sort of say, hey, I'm hearing some murmurings from the dead. I'm going to interpret them for you. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there for cheating people. They're not clearly like to say, they're, they're, they're basically the ones who would interpret what the dead person had to say. What's happening here is totally out of control. Someone actually appeared, <laughs> right? Someone appeared and clearly not in the way that she was expecting or wanting. This is totally out of control. And she begins to realize when it's Samuel, she realizes who the person is who's here. It's Saul. So she's frightened, right? And the way this has happened, the way the Bible describes this, I think, is a way for us to see God is allowing this to happen. God is making a point here. He wants to say something very clear to Saul. And I think you can guess what he's going to say. I've already said what I had to say. <laughs> right? 
Um, so Samuel appears, and Samuel asks Saul, like, bro, why are you bothering me? <laughs> What's the, why am I here? Uh, and Saul says in verse 15, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. He's like, I'm in trouble. Philistine army is here. I'm not sure if I can win against them. God won't talk to me. He's turned away. He won't speak to me, so tell me what to do. Notice, if you just look up the screens there, the number of times you see I and me in that passage, right? It's full of I, full of me. Saul wants a word from the Lord, but he wants it centered on him. He wants God's judgment, right, in this situation, but he wants it on his terms. He wants God to say, the right thing to happen is for you to win and everyone else to lose. But God's already spoken. God has already said, here is my judgment, and it is justice. Saul's been resisting it the whole time. But yet again, it's going to be made clear, I've already said what's had to be said. Verse 16, Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he has spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So Saul was focused on himself. Notice in that whole sequence, in all these different verses, how often you see the, 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 uh, the word the Lord, right? Almost every single verse, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. What's Samuel doing here? He's like, look, I know what you want, but what, what matters here, what's going to happen is what the Lord wants, right? And if there's a summary of what Saul, uh, Samuel is saying to Saul here is this. The Lord, this is in verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. God has already told you what he's going to do, and now he's doing it. That's how God works. I spoke, and now I'm doing it. God already told Saul, you're not going to be king. David's going to be next king. The reason that's happening is because this murderous, terrible king, King Amalek, he was a bad king, killed a lot of people in horrible ways. You let him go. And because of that, and many other examples of Saul's disobedience, you're not going to be king anymore, and your sons won't be king. Someone else is going to be king. And on top of that, you're going to lose this battle tomorrow. Your sons are going to die. You're going to die. All these things are going to happen. So story finishes, verse 20, Saul sort of falls on his face, completely prostrated on the ground. He won't eat, won't get up. They finally convince him to get up, eat something. Story picks up in, in chapter 31. I'll just summarize what happens in that chapter. Basically, the summary of that chapter is what Samuel said would happen is what happened. <laughs> Saul shows up for, for battle against the Philistines. They lose. They lose badly. And it's sad. His sons die. Saul gets gravely injured. And he asks his armor bearer, who's by him, kind of his bodyguard, hey, kill me, right? I don't want to be captured. The armor bearer is like, I can't do that. And so Saul, I mean, what a terrible way to die. He kills himself. It says he falls on his sword. And he was afraid of his body being desecrated. That's what happens. The Philistines find his body on the field of battle. This happened often in ancient warfare. They're like, man, we're, <laughs> this is great. So they cut off his head. They strip him naked. They nail his body to the wall of one of their cities along with their sons. Saul's story, though, does end, at least on, on this note, which is the men of Jabez Gilead, we're told, at the end of chapter 31. If you don't know Jabez Gilead, that was the first city Saul rescued from enemy attack when he became king. 
And so it's like they remembered, like, hey, like, you came for us right when you became king, right when you started off your kingship. We were under attack. You came and helped us. They hear about what's happened, and so they go all night, march all night, find those bodies, and give Saul and his sons a proper burial. So it ends at least on that note. But for us, you know, that's the end of the stories of Saul. But as we sort of reflect on this, the thing that comes out that I want to sort of, again, focus our attention on is, is, is this, this thing that, that God is speaking, he has spoken, he renders his judgment, and the tendency for us, the tendency for us over and over again is to resist it, to dismiss it, to try to change it, to fit what we prefer. But I think it's helpful here, it's helpful here to fight against that tendency to begin to realize, again, God's judgment is actually justice. Hopefully you caught that through the sermon. I kept on saying, when you read God's judgment in the Bible, more and more I'm trying to sort of make myself think God's judgment is actually justice. And I think that resonates a little bit more with us today because justice is something a lot of us talk about today. Like, I care about justice. I've marched for justice. George Floyd things. I was there. I was part of it, right? We care about justice. We should care about justice. I'm glad this church cares about justice. All those things are good and important. Here's the thing, if justice is always having us at the center, if justice is always determined by what we say is good and right, well, sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. Because we live in this world, we're all connected to one another. Justice only works if it operates actually independent of us, over us. It dictates to us. And well, the only being that can be over us and outside of human space and history outside of a world like ours, the only one who's able to do that is the Lord God, isn't it? So when we say God is judging, when we say God is speaking and giving a judgment, what we're saying is God is doing justice. He's operating from a place of who he is. He's always good. He's always fair. He's always just. So when God speaks, when he he judges, it's justice. It's justice far purer and better than all the things that we see. I mean, read any newspaper report today. Something happened, someone is indicted, or someone's put on trial, someone's convicted, and depending on what side, people are like, that's great, that's not great. That's good, that's not good. Not so with God. God is not determined by popular opinion. He's not arbitrary. He's not wishy-washy. He's not unclear. God speaks. He renders judgment. That is justice. And here's the thing. It always happens. Because God follows through. He always follows through what he says. What he says, he will do. And so here's the thing for us. Because of how we sometimes operate, sometimes we like it, and sometimes we don't. And when we don't, we resist it, we dismiss it, we try to change it. And I think the Bible is saying that's kind of outrageous. Right? It doesn't work. It's, use my analogy again, it's like the NBA player who like grabs a hold of someone, right? He's on the video and he's still arguing like I didn't do anything, it's not a big deal. I think sometimes in, in the cosmic sort of scope of things, we often sort of act as if like we, well, we aren't arbitrary. <laughs> we aren't wishy-washy. That we can be clear and understanding of things that we, we say and do. It's not true. Saul is a great example of this, isn't it? He resists. He dismisses. He tries to change what God has said. God's judgment. God's justice. It doesn't work. Let me suggest, though, a better way. One that's better than Saul's approach. That the right response to God's judgment, to his justice, is not resisting, dismissing, ignoring. The right response to God's justice is faith and submission. It's faith. It's saying, I believe you're God and not me. And it's submission. It's saying, 
I submit myself to your hands. I give myself to you. I submit to what you have to say. I submit to your standard of what's right and wrong. I submit to your justice. And I, I would argue, like, that's the main difference between Saul and David. I used to think for years that the thing about David that made him sort of stand out in the Bible is that, like, look, he wrote, like, he wrote all these psalms, right? <laughs> this poetry. He beat Goliath, right? I mean, this, this, this is a G. I mean, he's, 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 this guy, is, this, he's good, right? He's a great guy. No, actually, if you look at the whole story of David, more and more I'm thinking, like, he was actually worse than Saul. <laughs> like, he did far more worse things than Saul. I mean, Saul did some bad things, but if you look at the story of David, he was violent, right? We've already seen many examples of how many people he would be willing to kill, right, to get his own way at the drop of a hat. Uh, we know he's willing to lie and cheat and deceive people, right, to, to make sure things happen his way. He's a polygamist, right? Keeps marrying people, and then he cheats on all those wives. He he's engages in conspiracy. Uh, he's willing to use murder to cover up his cheating. He does all sorts of things, like terrible things, bad things. What's the difference with David? What makes him someone who's able to still be close to God? Here's the difference. When confronted with God's judgment, when confronted with justice, he accepts it. God brings justice, and he admits, yeah, I am a terrible person. <laughs> God, I submit to your justice. He doesn't resist. He listens. He repents. There's still consequences, <laughs> severe consequences for David. It doesn't erase the consequences in this world, but yet he can still come on the other side and be known as someone who has a close relationship with God. Why? Because every time he faces God's justice, he faces it with faith and submission to God. Every single time. That's the only way to face God's justice. Faith and submission to God. Throwing ourselves completely in the hands of God. Because here's the thing. Here's what happens. When you submit yourself to God's justice, you may think it will crush you. It will destroy you. But there's actually life on the other side. There's actually grace on the other side if you give yourself to God's justice, to his goodness and his righteousness. How can that be possible? How can God's justice leave us with grace? How is that possible? Here's the answer. It's possible in Jesus. We see early signs that God can do this in the Old Testament, don't we? But the stamp on this, the one that seals it for us, is Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to be honest with the fact that we have God's justice we must submit to and yet still receive grace and life on the other side. God set up a way where justice is met in the death of Jesus in our place and grace is given to us in the resurrected life of Jesus who now secures us a place forever with God. Here's what that means then. If Justice is met in the death of Jesus in our place. What that means is that we Christians, we can be more honest than anyone else out there. Do you understand that? Like, I, I, I have great suspicions. Great suspicions. Uh, can I say this? I'm going to say it. I have great suspicions and problems with churches and pastors and ministries and leaders that can never admit when they're wrong. They can never say, like, we're, we messed up. That Christians more than anyone should be more honest than anyone else. We can admit I can use this word. We can admit when we suck, right? And I use that word to say not just that we're bad, but that we're really bad, right? To really admit, like, we've stunk it up. We suck. Christians more than anyone should be able to do this. Why? Because in Jesus, we have someone who in his death 
in our place takes all our wrongs and all our failures. Why be dishonest about them? Why be dishonest about any of those things? Why be dishonest about all the ways in which, yes, we have failed and disobeyed God, like Saul, like David, and what we think and what we say and what we do in all sorts of different ways. Why try to hold that back? We're not paying the bill. You couldn't pay the bill. Justice would crush you. But that's why Jesus says, give it to me. I'll pay the bill. I'll stand in your place. I'll take it. Because justice, what's right and wrong still has to happen. Our universe will fall apart if right and wrong didn't exist. Right? We need right and wrong things. Right, rightness to happen and wrongness to be dealt with. Jesus says, I stand in your place. That allows you to have such freedom to admit all sorts of different things. To confess all different things. Because you're saying, I am this person and I submit myself to Jesus who takes my place. That's the first thing. But the second thing that means that we Christians in Jesus can be the most forgiving, the strongest encouragers, the most hopeful. That You know what? Guess what? The person who comes 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, 40 times, 100 times saying, here's all the ways in which I mess up. Here's all the ways in which I have failed. Here's all these things. As long as they keep coming in humble faith and submission, as long as they keep coming, they still hope for change. Every single time. There's still hope for them because Jesus doesn't just sort of take our place and take all of our wrongs and failures on himself. He also gives us his grace and says, you have a place with God that's forever safe and secure. And so you can keep coming knowing that place won't budge as long as you keep coming. As long as you keep coming, I don't care how many times it is, as long as you keep coming and you're honest and you're open and you confess it, there's a place secure for you that's not threatened by all your mess up and all your failures. The only way you get to that place is saying, I have to face the justice of God, but Jesus comes with me and he takes me into the grace of God into life forever with him. God speaks. His word and judgment is justice. And that can be overwhelming. It is overwhelming, especially if you look at the whole scope of your life and you look at all the details of your life. And you include your thoughts and feelings, not just what you say and do. It can be overwhelming, but in that is opportunity. It's opportunity to trust and submit to a God who is just and the justifier of all those who believe in him and accept the righteousness and grace of God that is only possible for us in Jesus. That's what God has offered us. That's what Jesus has for us. His justice, he's spoken, but he gives us righteousness so that we can live in grace and we can do so forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for, um, Lord, just the, the willingness to, to look straight in the mirror, Lord, uh, and how hard that is. Um, to look, not just us, Lord, for us to look at ourselves in the mirror, to have our community look ourselves in the mirror, to have people groups and others, Lord, be able to look honestly in the mirror and to say, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, not based on what we say is right and wrong, but based on you. The only one who can determine those things. And Lord, that's scary, and so that's why we avoid it, dismiss it, ignore it. Lord, I just pray, Lord, for a spirit of honesty, a spirit of openness, for a willingness, Lord God, to step in faith closer to you. And to know, Lord, that we will not stand before you alone. Jesus is there with us. You've given us Jesus. It's in Jesus, Lord, that yes, we realize you've already spoken, and here is justice. But that justice leads us into grace and life. And to your righteousness, a righteousness not of our own, a righteousness you give us. 
And so, Lord, um, I thank you, Lord, that really the, the example of faithfulness, Lord, is not so much how perfect we are, but how much we're willing to admit how much we fail, <laughs> how much sin is really a reality in our world, but also how much grace and hope there is in Jesus. And that is where we will end up and live. And so, Lord, may that encourage us, Lord, for those, Lord, who um, are, again, Lord, trying to determine what's right and wrong in their own terms, Lord, just pray. You, you open up to a higher standard, Lord, and one that actually gives us hope, Lord, because we know your justice will always come through. But, Lord, we're included in that as well, and so that's why we need you, Jesus, Lord. Help those who have not turned in faith to you to turn in faith and submission to you and recognize, Lord, when we place ourselves in your hands, those hands will not crush us. If we have Jesus, Lord, realize those hands are actually the hands of love and care that hold us and secure us because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you, Lord, for what we have. May we live, Lord, in great honesty about ourselves, but also great hopefulness. Lord, may we be more hopeful and encouragement to people all around us, Lord, because of what you've given us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.